My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode here of All the Hard Things. We are going to get into someone's personal story today, and I am super excited to have Kelly Walker here. Uh, She is a health and wellness coach. I think what really drew me to her story, in addition to so many other things, was that, like me, she works or worked with people who have OCD, and she also experienced it herself. So um, I think that's just a really unique kind of interplay between the two of, you know, interacting with it personally and then also professionally. So um, really eager to talk about health anxiety today, to talk about mental compulsions and you know, just all of the ways in which OCD comes up naturally in the life and how to kind of make CBT and ERP a part of your lifestyle. So Kelly, thank you so much for coming and being with us today. I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit more and just get into your story. Yeah, I am so happy to be here. Thanks so much, Jenna. Um, Yeah, so I am currently a health and wellness coach. My training is also as an RN, MSN. And like you said, um, my initial experience was working as a nurse in a community health center. So it was federally funded. It was for underinsured, underserved people. Um, largely, I think what the community health center was mostly known for was, you know, um, medical assisted recovery from opiates and, and things like that. But of course, um, with addiction and things like that comes anxiety and OCD underneath. And and for some people, for many people in that situation, addiction became a way of of dealing with the anxieties, the compulsions, the obsessions. And so um, once you kind of get through um, the surface, right, of of addiction, you also sort of find what's underneath. So we were seeing, again, a lot of people struggling with anxiety, panic attacks, OCD. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's the unique perspective, like like you said. I've struggled with OCD since um, you know I was nine or ten. It came up pretty early in life for me, um, and and it started. My initial theme was sort of the uh, the all popular like contamination cleanliness. I I would wash my hands until they were bloody. So you know my parents noticed that, and um, um, it's it's a little bit hard to hide that. So it it came out. Uh, pretty readily when I first started struggling and got some help and support initially. And, and that was wonderful. And I was able to sort of move on from that theme. But um, for me, it has largely most of my life, again, the themes jump around, but most of my life, it's largely come up as like health obsessions. So like um, what some people might think of as like hypochondrious, like it, it's eliminating the doubt that I have a health issue. It's been things like I've been worried about heart issues. I've been worried about different cancers or, um, you know, different autoimmune disease. You know, it's just pick the soup du jour. You know what I mean? And so for me, it has largely come up. The most debilitating piece for me has been like the health anxiety thing because it can, I can easily go down the rabbit hole, right? Of like getting on 
Dr. Google or I'm a healthcare provider. So I have access to even more in depth <laughs> Dr. Google like uh, apps and things like that, which is, you know, a blessing and a curse. So um, yeah, I think it's been a unique perspective as somebody that has struggled with it and works with people that struggles with it. And in some ways, it allows me to really connect and meet the patients where they're at with like a genuine understanding, authenticity and, and empathy. That's amazing. And you're bringing up so many awesome points here, a little sticky note where I'm writing down things that I want to ask you. Um, so I think, I think you're bringing to attention here. And what I really want to underscore here is just how debilitating OCD can be. Um, and I know that generally the audience listening here, they don't need to know that, but I feel like it's, you can't underscore it enough. Um, like I used to work in a residential setting where it was literally the most debilitating cases of OCD and anxiety in the whole entire world. They would literally from all over the uh, world, they would pack their bags and plan to come and live in this facility in this big mansion of sorts with 27 other people who had just as debilitating OCD for like 45 to 60 days, if not longer. Um, and I, the, some of the ones that stick out, they're all unique in their own ways, but some of the ones that stick out are the ones that you mentioned, right? Like, so like when, when there's also these really significant comorbidities of substance use to try to cope with the intensity and the debilitating nature of the obsessions and the anxiety. Um, I used to work with someone who she was so debilitated by her OCD. She was, she lived alone. I mean, her life by all accounts was completely miserable. She was drinking bleach to clean the insides of her body, like the insides of her organs, um, which obviously is super dangerous. Um, and I mean, she was like bathing herself in Lysol. She had just open wounds and sores all over her body. And she said that the only time that she felt any comfort and like any peace was when she was essentially like blackout wasted with alcohol. Um, and so it's really this issue of like what came first, the chicken or the egg. And I feel like so many times when it comes to substance use, we are treating the substance use. And it's like something obviously came first, right? Yeah. Whether it's OCD or trauma or anxiety or depression, maybe a little bit of, of everything. And um, yeah, I mean, OCD can truly get to that point where, I mean, you you are so desperate to get out of it. You'll do anything. Um, and it, it just really underscores that for me. I also love that we're talking about contamination OCD because I feel like as much as we go the one direction, of like OCD is not just about contamination, so on and so forth. Like it's still really debilitating for those people. So I want them to feel that. Um, and then also the Google thing, right? Like you have this blessing <laughs> and a curse, like you said, just, you know, especially when it comes to health anxiety and health OCD, like it's very tempting to just kind of pop onto Dr. Google and see what's going on. So um, yeah, lots to kind of unpack there. Yeah. You know, I think for every everyone's different right everybody has their soup du jour their theme of ocd um and for me there there was a point where the health ocd it made my life so small you know i went from a space of like this was about probably a decade ago um i went from a space of like traveling internationally working as a nurse you know um in a step down like icu unit I was hiking. I, I lived a big life. Like I, you know, had studied abroad. It was it was a very big, expansive life, which was not free 
of OCD. You know, it came in fits and starts for me from the time I was like nine or 10 and it would kind of cycle and, and it just sort of crossed this threshold a decade ago. It was almost like the ways I sort of coped with feeling doubt, feeling out of control, just they became more problemsome than, than helpful. And that was a really hard place to be because that's how I knew how to deal with struggle and challenge and feeling out of control and change, right? Was like, you know, controlling anything that wasn't pinned to the ground or whether it was washing my hands, whether it was like remaking lists obsessively. And the hell, it really showed up in this health anxiety where um, uh, there just, there wasn't enough reassurance in the world and my life shrank and the panic attacks increased. And my life was like my bed for a solid three or four months. Like I wasn't going to the mailbox. Like I would skitter downstairs, have breakfast, run back upstairs. It got small and it got small fast, right? Like it was amazing how quickly it shifted just by sort of engaging those health compulsions. I would check my blood pressure. You know, this is for people that have this. I, you know, and I've, I've worked with people that have this, it can be so debilitating. I'd be checking my blood pressure every five or 10 minutes. My, you know, hand was on my carotid checking my pulse like every every five minutes. I'm on Dr. Google, you know, I'm checking everything. And, you know, eventually I think so many of us that struggle with OCD get to a point where it's like the compulsions are almost more work, right? Than than the suffering. And there's that tipping point where it's like, okay, I'm going to slowly start stretching things here. And um yeah, I, I would say the health anxiety was was really a, a tipping point. It was really um when things got hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That just like being in your bed. Um, I always say that as your world becomes bigger, OCD gets smaller, right. And vice versa. And yep. OCD just has this like wildly insidious nature to it, right? Like it starts out with one hand wash or it starts out with checking this thing once, or it starts out with, you know, reassurance seeking here or going on to Google once. Um, and all of a sudden, right? Like it's not too long before, you know, you're isolated into your bed for several weeks, if not months. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's really insidious like that. And you talked about your themes changing, which is obviously kind of par for the course when it comes to obsessive compulsive disorder we know that, you know, it's the doubt disorder, as I always say, and that, you know, it kind of just shifts to whatever it is that you're giving attention. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously the health anxiety uh, seems like that was the most debilitating and most consuming for you. Uh, you also had mentioned to me um, about like really struggling with mental compulsions. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. Which I, I think obviously <laughs> as a community, we like people who have OCD, they obviously know the difficulty of these mental or cognitive compulsions. But, you know, the society at large, we kind of just imagine these like very overt or behavioral compulsions. So I would love to know like, step-by-step step, kind of what were the compulsions that you were giving into, um, would love for our audience to be able to like see themselves in some of those examples. Yeah. So you, you use the word insidious. And I think especially with, you know, uh, all of OCD is hard, but for me personally, the cognitive compulsions, there's, it can almost feel like there's no space right between like stimulus and response. Whereas if there's a behavioral compulsion for me, it was always a little bit easier to sort of inch my way out of behavioral compulsions. Cause there's just a little bit more space 
before the physical act. And that's probably not the same for everybody. But for me, the cognitive ones were more challenging because honestly, at first, I wouldn't even know I was stuck in them because it is so insidious. There's not a lot of space. It just presents itself as like truth or fact. So even when I did sort of, even when I was able to move past like the sort of physical compulsions of health anxiety, like physical checks, you know, I, I had a whole lot of physical checks. There was still the cognitive compulsions of replaying. Um, and this is when things would get so exhausting. I would replay my knowledge as a nurse, which is like pretty expansive. We learn a pretty wide breadth of like physiology, anatomy, pharmacology, like this is a lot of knowledge to sift through for every cognitive compulsion. So it was like sifting through my knowledge as a nurse to make sure I was okay. It was sifting through my own physical history. So like past test results, past measurements, past conversations with healthcare providers. So the cognitive compulsions, you know, it, it just felt more insidious and it felt harder to drop because the space was so tight. Like it'd be like discomfort, doubt, um, fear, that unsettledness and quickly, straight away, it'd be like sort of dropping into reviewing the knowledge I had, reviewing like my previous experiences, my previous test results. And it's funny, I guess, I mean, it must have given me some relief in the beginning, but as I brought more awareness to this, I realized honestly, nine times out of 10, I wasn't sort of getting the assurance I wanted. I wasn't eliminating the doubt as much as I would have, you know, liked to. And that, I mean, you know, as probably many of your listeners know, and I'm sure you talk about here like that dopamine system is greedy. It just wants more and more and more, more compulsions, more time spent on this and like less and less space for living. So yeah, the cognitive compulsions really took, I think, more conscious, like developing that capacity for more conscious awareness for like like dropping into my values. And it was hard at times because I'm, again, like I'm sure you talk about here, it can feel really risky. Like I think what was really hard for me, right? Everybody has a reason why their, their OCD feels risky to step away from. And for me, it was like in the moment, it felt very much like I cannot ignore this. This is my health. I could die, you know, like I could leave my, um, like I, I could leave my husband here, my parents, this was like a decade ago, you know, like I'm, I'm going to leave my parents childless. Like it's, it really looked like I can't ignore this. I have to take care of my health, which again, hindsight's 2020. Of course I was taking care of my health. I did my yearly physical. I did what was recommended at the time. Right. Like, but in the moment it felt like it is unsafe to drop this. And especially with the cognitive compulsions. I think that really was the hardest hump for me to overcome. Like, but are you sure I can step away from this compulsion? Cause it feels risky and it feels irresponsible and, and unsafe. And I think it took a lot of like, almost just exhausting myself first to the point where like, I didn't care. Like that's how I had to move through it at first, like exhausting myself again, to the point where I was like, fine, if I'm dying, I don't care. And, you know, to sort of see like, hey, I can step back from this. There is still safety and, you know, security here and responsibility with my health and, and stepping back from this. But man, it just felt so risky at first. And it, it really just 
you know, a lot of trial and error. And like really, at first it just uh, exhausted myself. And that's how I was sort of able to see maybe there's a different way to feel safe and, you know, responsible here. Yeah, this is such a good look into what it actually feels like to like be in between that like rock and hard place, right? Yes. Uh, you feel so irresponsible. You know what you need to do and you want to do it. You don't want to continue living life the way that you're living, but it feels no. irresponsible. It feels so risky. It does. Um Jonathan, so uncomfortable. <laughs> Jonathan Grayson, um, he does well, this is who I learned it from anyway. Jonathan Grayson has us um in a conference that he just did recently, he he's told us before he's an OCD professional and has authored like tons and tons of books, books. Um, he's amazing at what he does. He's kind of an expert. Um, and he taught us to do what's called like an empathy check as therapists. And he takes us through this metaphor of like, imagine that you have a loaded gun and there's like 15 barrels in it, right? Like 15 potential, like, you know, whatever, um, bullets, there's only one bullet. So the other 14 are empty. If I gave you a million dollars, would you take a chance? Like knowing that you could hurt, you know, kill yourself or kill your child <laughs> or your pet or whatever, would you take that chance for a million dollars? And it's like, no, no. And then he goes, <laughs> yeah. well, what if it was like one out of a hundred? The answer is still no. What if it was like one out of a million? The answer is still no. Right. And it's kind of yeah. like, that's what we're asking people to do when we ask yes. them to give up their rituals where, you know, the stakes are really high. The stakes are incredibly high and it feels like that. I mean, it truly feels that way for, I want to say you guys, but like, I've been there to myself, especially with postpartum OCD. It's like you and something else that Jonathan Grayson also encourages us as professionals to do is like, you know, people, when you're at that point, like you almost have to get to this point of mourning, like of, you yeah. kind of have to accept that, like, yeah, you, you may be doing something here, right? Like you may be doing something that's unsafe. Like you are giving up that feeling of temporary security. You are giving up that feeling of temporary discomfort, but you truly have to take as cliche as it sounds. You have to take that leap of faith and it is scary as hell. It is. Um, it I is like what got you to that. I mean, I'm sure people out there who are struggling, I try to just envision like what they're thinking right now. Like what got you to be able to take that leap of faith? Because it wasn't worth, honestly, I'd rather be dead than live the rest of my life in bed, you know, right. like, like I, I would rather, you know, and that's what it felt like at the time. It felt like if I left my bed and walked outside or walked around the block, like my heart would, again, it sounds, um, especially for, you know, what at the time was a healthy 25 year old, right? Like I knew how it sounded to other people, but in my body, in my experience, it felt like, no, I could die. Like, and I probably will if I try to walk around the block. And so, um, and again, this was, this was preceded by like a minor medical event. So like building that trust in my body, but I will say it's because it got to such a low Point, I was like, I would rather risk it, right? I would rather risk dropping dead from, you know, what felt like an inevitable heart ailment at the time. And again, had been to the doctors, had had all the testing in the world. It, it really provided me no reassurance. It just came to the point where it was like, it's just, this is too small. My, my life is, it's just, this is not the life I want. This is not how I would like it to look. So I will chance what feels like dropping dead on the road, um, to expand my life again. 
you know, to make it bigger, to live in accordance with my values and the things I loved, to let those things have a say in how um, my life moved forward, not just the fears and the compulsions and the worries and, and all that. Wow. That's so powerful. And it's so true. It's so powerful. And it's so true. Like you really, truly have to get to that point where like, it's risky one way or the other, right? Like it's risky one way or the other. It's risky to take these chances and to take those bets of, you know, feeling the feelings that you have and not, you know, calling your doctor or not reassuring with yourself in your head. It's also risky to continue doing that because, you know, that's not the life that you want to live and it's not really working anyway. Right. Um, Right. I felt really crappy. Honestly, like I was in bed, but I still didn't feel safe or sure or comfortable in my own body and in bed, my nervous system was completely desensed or completely sensitized. Um, And so I was like, I'm not even comfortable in bed. I might as well be uncomfortable on the beach. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, it's like, I'm, this isn't even eliminating the discomfort, right? And being in bed is no longer um, really the safe space it might've been for a few weeks. Now I'm feeling unsure and, you know, there's no running from this, I guess is what it sort of felt like, which was sad and hard and frustrating, but also I think the catalyst to start towards my healing. Absolutely. So I'd love to transition into talking about like, that's, that's kind of where you were and that was the low point, but now you're doing so much, right? So you're currently in nurse practitioner school. You have a master's in nursing. You um, are a health and wellness coach. I really want to get into like, well, what, what was the transition? Like, what has it been like more recently? Um, would love to talk about, you know, any of the experiences that you can kind of bring into this discussion related back to anxiety, panic, OCD, anything like that. Um, and kind of how you balance all of that in your professional world, but also like, as you continue to maintain your own recovery over time. Yeah, it's, um, I think I have really loving boundaries with myself. So I know that, um, just based on like, based on sort of my, I I have had like sort of medical traumas in the past. So sometimes I kind of separate myself from, from me and my patients, you know, it's loving boundaries. If I'm looking at something and I feel sort of that surge in my body where it, it feels personal to me, if it's something that has, that relates to sort of my past medical traumas or history, it's a very conscious, like, kind of dropping into my body for me, body work has, has really helped. And so, um, it's sort of dropping into my body, like breathing into the space. That's really anxious, like slowing things down, like really just slowing things down for a second. And, you know, it's a fast paced environment. So it's not like, it's not like taking a 15 minute break. It really is just like 30 deliberate seconds. Or like when I have my physical every year, I know there is, (laughs) there is potential, right. For like, um, for test results to come back less than ideally, you know, there's always, there's, I assume it's going to go well, but there is that doubt. I don't know till I know. And so it's loving boundaries with myself where I just sort of wait for my healthcare provider to like reach back out to me. I don't check a thousand times in the patient portal. I, um, have like a conversation with my healthcare provider about like, Hey, what tests really are recommended here? I don't want to be getting under or over. Cause for me, I could lean towards, Hey, let's test everything. And again, from sort of my training, I know that that's not necessarily helpful. Um, especially if we're not looking at things in the sense of like a pattern. So for me, it's really just over the years, I've done a lot of healing. ERP has helped, um, 
you know, somewhat for me at trauma healing has helped a lot for me. Like, like you've probably talked about or said, you know, for a lot of people, what's underneath, right? That OCD for some people, it's trauma and other things. So sort of healing that trauma and sort of reconnecting with my body has helped me hold space for doubt and unsuredness. That's just been my path. And so that, in addition with like setting loving boundaries with myself and showing myself grace, right? Like if I, if I engage in a, you know, something that I know could quickly become, um, a compulsion. Um, you know, I just try to remind myself, Hey, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And I, you know, I can try again. I can always begin again in, in the next minute. And it's not going to be perfect. It's not always going to be pretty and showing myself. Yeah. Just that, that grace and knowing I really am doing the best I can. And sometimes the best I can do is like, oh, yeah, I spent five minutes on, you know, the up-to-date healthcare app or whatever, five minutes more than I wanted and step away and learn from it and try again. Yeah. I think that's hard really for people to do. I think we tend to think that, you know, it's, you know, people who have OC and anxiety, as you know, and probably can relate, right? Like we often feel like everything is all or nothing or black and white. Mm -hmm. And yeah. We catastrophize, you know, if we had one slip up or, you know, we gave yeah. into a ritual, it's like, then we almost, we beat ourselves up even more about that. And what does that mean? I'm not doing treatment correctly and I'm going to relapse. And we end up kind of making this happen even, even worse. Right. So I truly wish that everyone can get to the, and I hope that everyone can get to the point where they give themselves that grace because I mess up every day. Like I've been you know, studying this disorder and working with people who have OCD. And I've been through the ringer myself with it. I've been through treatment. I, you know, OCD work is my life. Like if I'm not yeah. doing it with someone else, right. Like I'm doing it for myself. And so I still, I still mess up all the time. There are things that I avoid and it's not perfect, but I also don't like, there's not like a tally board in my mind of like, no. <laughs> you know, like my good days or my bad days. Like I'm just trying to stay as present as possible and try to live the lifestyle to the best of my ability. And, you know, yeah. check in with myself, I think so many people, they have like this ongoing tally board or like scorecard, um, with like how many of the exposures they did and how they, how many times they resisted versus how many times they give in. And it's like, maybe initially we need to do that, but like, it's not, you can't hold yourself to that, like very rigid and rigid and structured standard forever. Like you have to just live your life. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it was like that experiential learning after I had had enough slip ups, it was sort of like that experiential learning, like, Hey, beating myself up and adding shame, like adding another layer of shame, judgment, and all that stuff just keeps this sticking around longer. Shame is a terrible motivator. Self judgment and criticism is a terrible motivator. It just, from a practicality sense, I just saw it's not working. So like, what, what's the alternative here, right? What's the other option? If I'm not shaming or beating myself up or being really rigid, you know, it's like that be that can become a compulsion in itself, right? That rigidity and keeping track and keeping a tally. And so it's, I think it was just from, again, like, um, you know, messing up, messing up so many times and just seeing, like, honestly, beating myself up just keeps the shame and the, and the compulsions, honestly, around longer. And it just increases the suffering. And I think sometimes we just have to see that we can give ourselves a break when, you know, not cutting ourselves a break just doesn't work. Sometimes we just, I think, have to see that it doesn't work. Shaming ourselves doesn't work before we can say, okay, I guess, I guess I can let go of that, 
that piece at least. <laughs> and self-compassion is hard in that way too. It's like, especially for like, I'm guilty of this. I have always been of the opinion that like, you have to, I have to be hard on myself. Like I have to give myself tough love or I'm not going to be the best that I can possibly be. Or complacency, right? Or like the risk for complacency if I'm just not on top of myself all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be that way with other people, but with myself for sure. Right. Um, and then I, you know, after years of feeling like crap and, you know, not giving myself that compassion, I was like, well, I guess I have to try this self, right. Stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. You have to like, really be honest and like, stop lying to yourself and, um, be willing to try something different. Even if it doesn't work, like what you're doing probably doesn't work that well either. So there's only so long that we can continue to do the same thing or same things over and over again, before we have to pivot, we have to stop perseverating people who have OCD, they pretend to perseverate, which is like, they tend to just try the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, before they pivot and move on to something different. Um, yeah. And, you know, we do that with rituals, obviously, but we do that with recovery strategies too. Like, I just want to do this ritual one more time before I seek out treatment that everyone says works so well. I just want to continue talking to myself like crap before I try this self-compassion stuff that everybody says works so well. It's like, we really just have to do what works for us in the long term, and, you know, take those leaps of faith. It sounds so cliche, but it's so true. It's so many leaps of faith. And that's why this, I mean, it really takes... I know people probably don't feel like this, but like, and I don't feel like this, like when I'm taking my leaps of faith and my husband's like, that's really courageous. I'm like, I just feel small and insufficient and like crap, but really like when I see other people doing it or I kind of step back from it and, um, you know, or have a little bit of distance, like, yeah, it, it takes, it really does. It's not cliche. It takes a lot of courage. It's, it's hard. A lot of people don't, you know, bump up people that don't struggle with OCD, right? They don't, they don't bump up against their safety and security zone as much as we do day in and, and day out, right? That would be hard for anybody that's bumping up against their security and safety and doubt and, and all that. So it really does take courage to take so many, what can feel like a dogfight of a thousand leaps of faith every day. Yeah, for sure. So I would love for you really quickly to talk about the work that you do, talk about the health coaching that you do yeah. um, and kind of its benefit for mental health, right? I know, um, you know, that's just becoming more and more of a, of a, of a platform these days, health and wellness coaching. And, and you're so good, obviously at what you do. Um, I would love to, you know, hear more about that and, you know, what it is that you do right now, kind of on a day-to-day -day basis and how you implement, you know, ERP into your daily life now. Yeah, so I'm I'm currently working as as a health and wellness coach. I have my own business, my own business, Kelly Walker Coaching, and um, I also have a podcast, Not Another Anxiety Show, where we sort of, you know, it, it has the word anxiety in it, but we we try to zoom out and really talk about the human experience, the shared experience. Um, you know, it's it's a little different than like here's the five steps to overcoming anxiety it's and again we talk about we have different you know, you're going to be actually on the show right in like 10 minutes here we have lots of really great guests and um different experts in the field and people sharing their stories and just you know having a conversation around this so that we can all remember that you know we're in this together and we're human and day in and day out you know i'm working as a health and wellness coach so sort of um you know while i'm on break from NP school right now over the summer. But, um, you know, my 
my passion honestly is like sort of that preventative well, preventative health. And, um, you know, our current healthcare system sometimes can be really reactive, right? Really reactive to health. It has a reactive sort of medical care model. And I really love prevention and overall wellness. And I'm a nurse. So any nurse will tell you like we're, we're trained holistically, right? We are just trained to see the, the whole person, which I think is, is really important for for well-being, and so um, while sort of my niche as as a coach, as a health and wellness coach, and it sort of just depends what your experience is, right? Like your professional experience and licensure and whatnot. But um, my experience as a nurse has largely been working within like the mental health realm. So that's my niche. Um, I also work with people, right, that have other aspects of health and wellness that they want to move through and, and heal and improve. But for me, my niche is people that are struggling with anxiety and burnout and overwhelm. And often I'll sort of work in tandem, right? With therapy, it's, it's a beautiful sort of synergistic relationship um, where the therapist can sort of right, help with healing, can help with right specific quote unquote, like diseases or just disorders, whereas the health and wellness coach are like, hey, this is where we're at right now. How can we support ourselves? Given this is where we are, maybe we are struggling with OCD. Maybe we are struggling with anxiety. Maybe we're working on healing those things in the moment, whatever it might be. Um, given that this is here, how can we best support ourselves? How can we take care of ourselves in a way that sort of slowly moves us towards what our vision of health and wellness is, right? So, um, it's again, it's, it's a newly, you hear the word coaching. I think there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding and misconception because coaching has not been largely regulated until recently. And coaching is an umbrella term for so much. And honestly, unfortunately, there are some people out there, right. That quote unquote, call themselves coaches have sort of no medical training in our life, trying to sell the answer. It can feel a bit like snake oil. Right. So for me, I'm a certified health and wellness coach. There's a national certification. There's at least like 30 peer reviewed studies that support this protocol. And, um, you know, the physical benefits of health and wellness coaching are pretty blaringly clear in these studies, but so is sort of the mental benefit. We see things like reduced anxiety, increased emotional resilience. Um, some of the other things were like decreased depression, decreased addiction, things like that. So um, yeah, I'm, I work with a pretty, pretty big population and um, in school, and that's about what I'm up to right now. And always at the same time, I'm kind of, I, I really value learning and um, curiosity and things like that. So, you know, part of my professional journey is taking care of myself too, right? And again, like you said, there's there's slip ups, there's challenging situations. Like just this weekend, I went, you know, um, my husband and I actually met whitewater rafting, becoming whitewater rafting guides. And we took a bunch of friends up this weekend and the campsite was so loud. I slept like garbage. Sleeping is like one of the biggest components that helped me and my general mental health. And um, I just felt like garbage the next morning. And I sort of leaned into like my old compulsion I brought my Pepto in my purse, my Pepto-Bismol. This was one of my, I don't know, probably for a decade, I had Pepto-Bismol in my purse and it was a compulsion. Like I'd feel anxious and I'd often feel it in my stomach. That's just where it, it largely lives for me. Um, and it'd be like, swig, 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 you know? And um, I, I leaned into that this weekend. And again, Monday was a little bit like, oh, like God, 
that was, that was hard. I felt kind of crappy for part of that. And God, I hadn't brought Pepto in. I haven't even thought about bringing Pepto in my purse and God knows how long. And Monday was a little bit of like, I don't know, processing and, and recovering from that and sort of just focusing on how I wanted to take care of myself and, you know, give myself that, that space to sort of just heal, give my nervous system the support it needed. But yeah, it's part of, part of my journey, you know, is sort of supporting myself and learning and growing too. And it's, you know, a little bit of a passion project for sure. I think, you know, what do they call it? Me search. Like when people get into research, they call it me search because these things resonate with me too. So yeah, yeah for sure. It keeps you honest, right? Like yeah. I, I often think like, gosh, like if I wasn't still actively seeing, you know, clients, if I wasn't still doing the work that I'm doing via the podcast or whatever, like, I don't know where I'd be. Like, I, I don't know. It, it keeps you honest. It's, it's a yeah. constant, um, aware, right? Like there's this kind of awareness that could easily drop away. I feel like without it being, yeah. Yeah, totally. For sure. Well, oh my gosh, before we get into, um, where people can find you and learn more about, you know, your podcast and all the wonderful things that you have to offer. Um, I would love if you would answer our telltale question, um, of kind of, you know, underlying why I made this podcast called all the hard things. Um, I feel like in order to do well with this OCD recovery work, right, you do have to find value in doing the hard stuff um, yeah. because OCD, when you give into the obsessive compulsive rituals, right, it's like very automatic, uh, automatically gratifying, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of how it ropes you in, right? Like it feels automatically very good, even though the long-term detriment is clearly there. OCD recovery flips that completely on its head. You have to take those leaps of faith, like we've so often talked about in this episode. Um, and it does not feel good. It, it is anything mm -hmm. but feel good. Um, and you really have to be in it and do the hard things so that you can have that benefit in the long term, even though you don't know when or to what capacity you're going to be able to have it. So, um, but not everyone gets it, right? Like I've worked with so many people who what if I could have it the easier way, why would I want to do the hard thing? Um, <laughs> I love like everyone's responses are different and I'll never get sick of this question or the answer. So I want to know from you, why do you think it's so important for people to do hard things? Oh, because if I, I know for me, if I didn't do hard things, my life would be small. My life would be small. And by doing the hard work, it doesn't mean I don't have hard days still. Rafting was a hard day. Getting on that boat, knowing I felt like garbage and like for me sort of being stuck in a space can be like a trigger. Not always. And it's, it's much less so now these days than it was a decade ago, but it was an off day and it was hard to get on that boat. And I'll be honest, I'm really glad I did because now I know next time I feel that way, like getting on a plane anything that makes me feel trapped or like going to my physical, dealing with my health, when hard things come up, it really instills this more and more experiential confidence that like, I've been here before, I know what this feels like, I can move through this, and then it becomes a blip, it becomes a nothing. Like I, this was Sunday morning, I've largely already forgot about it and have moved on and am living my life. So I think it's, Doing the hard work doesn't guarantee there won't be another hard day, but it it does mean there's so much. 
I'm able to live more in align with my values. I do have a lot more good days for doing the hard work. I do have a lot more novel and new and exciting experiences. I have more freedom, really. Like I have more freedom. I'm not largely relying on obsessions and compulsions to feel okay and safe in the world. It's, it's hard. And there's some days where I don't want to do it, or there have definitely been days where I'm like, I don't want to do it. Like even like rafting, I'm like, I got two four and a half year olds at home. Like I am tired. I don't have the energy to push myself. Like I'm already pushed most days. Like I put them to bed and I'm like ready to like, you know, conk out on the couch. Like it's, it's a lot of stimulus with two little four and a half year olds and, and a lot of work to be honest. And so it's, yeah, it, it doesn't always feel worth it in, in the moment, or it can really feel like hard work, but, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have the life I have today, which honestly, I, it sounds cheesy, but most days it's like an overwhelming sort of wave of gratitude. I, I really like where my life is now. And I know it wouldn't be here if I didn't do the hard work that can really feel like a dog fight. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are so strong. Oh my gosh. You like, I have chills right now. You can't see, but I have chills, um, and goosebumps from this whole conversation. Uh, before we wrap up here, I would love for you to give our audience one more reminder of where they can find you, where they can find your podcast and more about your business and, um, link up with you maybe on social media. So the floor is yours now go ahead and let them know where they can find you. Thank you. Okay. I'm, I'm terrible at social media. I'm not even going to give that I'm barely on social media. So you can, you can find me, um, at not another anxiety show on Apple podcasts. So, um, you can also find me at not another anxiety show.com or kellywalkercoaching.com. They're, they're really the same thing, but that's sort of my coaching website and my landing page and, and all that jazz. And I still really don't know how to use Instagram, but I'm, I think I'm Kelly Walker coaching. And not another anxiety show. I think it's, I think it's those things. If you guys are on that fancy Instagram that all them tech savvy folks are on. Otherwise, yeah, you can just find me on my podcast or at, at the website I mentioned. Awesome. Well, speaking of that podcast, you guys, if you go and give it a listen, you'll probably be able to, to view or listen to one of the episodes that I'm going to be on. So um, I'm super excited for that conversation too. So Kelly, thank you again so much for coming. I loved just your, your story. I think so many people will be able to resonate with it. I really appreciate the, the tenacity that you kind of were able to demonstrate here and show us. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. 
With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.